This is an SM Media production. Hi everyone and welcome to the final episode of this series of The Rewind right here on SM Media. I'm Scott McPike, it's an absolute pleasure to be your host as always. We have looked at a lot of subjects in this series, we've looked at the infamous run of John Barnes at Celtic, we've looked at the golden generation at Hibs and Aberdeen winning the European Cup Winners' Cup. So for the final episode we thought it was only fitting we would look at the national team and probably the national team's greatest opportunity in a World Cup finals in 1974 when a really group of talented players came within touching distance of reaching the knockout stages of the World Cup. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome this week's guest onto the show. For for many years, he's been a, a vocal point of, of the media in Scotland. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome on Roddy Forsyth. Roddy, thank you very much for joining me on this show. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's a pleasure also for me, Scott. Thank you. No worries at all. How are you? Well, um, you've brought back some memories. of. Uh, I wasn't uh, working in those days covering uh, the World Cup, but I do remember some of it and how potent a subject it was for argument, as I'm sure we're going to find out, aren't we? Yeah, we are indeed. I mean, we, we obviously it's a long, long time ago and obviously football has changed so much and we're recording this on a World Cup year. So it's only fitting, I think, we go back to the best chance Scotland have ever had to go go kind of progress the knockout rounds in a World Cup. Roddy, see when you look back on this tonight from in 2022, how talented was this was this group of players? I mean, I'm just looking here at the squad. I mean, there's some names I just want to ring off. You've got the likes of Jim Holton, Sandy Jarden, Danny McGrain, Billy Bremner, Jimmy Johnson, Davy Hay, Tommy Hutchison. Kerry Douglas, Joe Jordan, Dennis Law, Peter Lorimer, Willie Morgan. That's that's not a bad group of players, isn't it? We felt at the time, I think, that it was almost automatic that they would qualify from their section in the World Cup. Uh, but as we have discovered with many a group of very talented players since that time, it needs more than that. It needs organisation. It needs tactical nous. It needs luck. And that, were, that, that wasn't something that Scotland were particularly good at generating in this competition. Roddy, we'll, we'll move it kind of before the World Cup. We've obviously got a, a couple of things to cover before we actually get into Scotland's run in the tournament. The manager at the time before the World Cup was Tommy Doherty. He'd obviously been a, a well-known figure. The World Cup group stage, the, the qualifying Denmark and Czechoslovakia. Scotland had won their first two games, beating Denmark and then out of the blue. Tommy Doherty had been offered money to go to Man United and took that job. What did you, what's your kind of memories of that and what's your thoughts on obviously what you've heard since about Tommy Doherty and obviously we know he's a, a very colourful character in Scottish football but what's your kind of, what kind of stands out to you about that that decision when Tommy Doherty left the national team? I feel like most football associations was very conservative. They liked what they knew and actually their first choice as manager was Willie Cunningham. Right. He'd won 30, he was a Northern Irishman who won 30 caps for his country and he'd been manager at Dunfermline, Falkirk, St Mirren. It wasn't a spectacular pedigree, but he'd taken Dunfermline to third place in the Scottish First Division. Mm-hmm. And the SFA asked him to be their manager, and they were surprised and quite miffed when he said no. 
Cunningham actually quit management in 1974 when he couldn't get St Mirren promoted, so it's unlikely he would have energised the Scotland squad. But they turned to Tommy Doherty, known as the Doc. He'd something of a reputation as a ducker and diver with a lot to say for himself. And he was assistant manager to Terry Neal at Hull City, but he fancied himself quite clearly at a higher level. And yes, if he appointed him on a temporary basis, then they gave him a four-year contract. And he did have an impact. He gave Kenny Dalglish his international debut against Belgium at Pataudry. And then his 12 games in charge, he supervised home and away wins over Denmark in the qualifiers. And typically for the doc, he said, my biggest ambition is to take Scotland to the World Cup finals in Germany. I've signed a four-year contract. I will be with them all that time, which was not the case because, as you say, when he got a sniff of the job at Manchester United, he, he jumped at it and he moved to Old Trafford in 1973. And Scotland's decision to appoint Willie Ormond, and obviously Willie Ormond had been a terrific player back in his day, but... He'd been at St Johnston. He wasn't. I wouldn't say. Can kind I of looking back and can kind I of reading things about this? I wouldn't say it was. It was the popular choice to be the manager. What was? What do you think that was about? Like Willie Ormond coming in. Do you think that was a with a, a character like Tommy Dockery who was very full of himself? And I, I don't think Willie Ormond was like that. Would you agree? Yes, they swung the opposite way with Willie. After the flamboyant Doherty, Willie was a much more reserved figure. He had taken St. Johnson to a Scottish League Cup final. He'd seen them to third place in the league behind Celtic and Aberdeen, but ahead of Rangers. And he had steered Saints to a European place. So it was a big achievement for a small club, and that mattered to the SFA. Willie was known as the quiet man, Mm -hmm. and not all the fans liked that. It didn't help his standing with the supporters when Scotland lost 5-0 to England at Hamden in his first game in charge. That was um, friendly to mark the centenary of the SFA. But then they yeah. lost to Northern Ireland and England in the 1973 Home Championships. And it began to become quite a fear amongst the Tartan Army that the Scots would blow their qualifying showdown against Czechoslovakia at Hamden. But that became a legendary occasion for those who were there and who saw Scotland fall behind but stage a comeback. Goals from Jim Holton and Joe Jordan, which meant they qualified for the World Cup finals for the first time in 16 years. And to make matters even sweeter for the Tartan Army, England didn't make the finals because they could only draw the last qualifier against Poland at Wembley. So the Scots were on their way to West Germany, and when the draw was made, they found they would have the company of Brazil, Yugoslavia, and Zaire. And it's interesting with you, you touching that England game, that 5-0 defeat, because when you look at that Czechoslovakia game, only four of the team that started that 5-0 defeat to England that played in that Czechoslovakia game. And what was the... Who were the kind of players that came through in that? I mean, Tommy Hutchison immediately comes to mind. I mean, he was a player from Coventry City who nobody had really heard of, but he came in and Willie Ormond, who you've you've kind of read since. One thing he had was he was a tremendous judge of a player. And he was able to kind of foster a new team and build them in and manage to get them qualified for a World Cup against a Czechoslovakia side who at the time were a real powerhouse in European football. Yes, and uh, Joe, sorry, Jim Holton who scored the equaliser to bring Scotland back into the game after they'd fallen behind. He became um, legend in a song, of course, Six Foot Two, Big Jim Holton's After You. Mm. Um, and he became, now many Scottish fans now will not remember Joe, or, or sorry, Jim, uh, and won't be able to bring him to mind easily, but he was crucial to that team, as was Joe Jordan. Now, Scotland in those days had a degree of um, power in the air, particularly with those two. And, of course, we were supposed to also have the trickiness of Jimmy Johnson, which was interesting because Jimmy played a major role, a starring role, although not in the way he had planned. 
in the build-up to the, the games, but um, uh, later uh, when we got into the home championship before the World Cup. Mm -hmm. But uh, ironically, Jimmy Johnson, who was felt uh, to be one of the key figures, was not used during the World Cup. And that was something that uh, Willie Ormond, he never really answered questions about Jimmy. And there was a lot of speculation that Jimmy might have been um, disciplined for the episode, of course, with the rowing boat, which no doubt we're going to talk about. Eh? We certainly are, yeah. There's a, there's a couple of incidents that take place in the preparation for the World Cup, but it's a 16-year hiatus since Scotland has had from, from the World Cup last qualifying in 58. And obviously, how big was the hunger for the Tartan Army to get to a World Cup, especially considering, as you mentioned, England hadn't qualified and only eight years previously they'd had to see England win the World Cup in their home soil. What was what was the Tartan Army's kind of hunger for the to get to that kind of big occasion like back in that time? Well, the feeling was it wasn't just eight years too late um, because they could look back to 67 when the unbeaten world champions, England, were beaten on their own turf at Wembley by a Scottish side that really was at times quite cavalier in its football, the way we love to see players play. And uh, the feeling was that it was just a matter of time before if we could get to our finals with that sort of attitude, then Scotland would make an impact. But of course, um, Scotland in those days and footballers in those days were perhaps a little less professional than they might be considered now. And that, of course, was something that we saw um, in Largs mm -hmm. because the home championship um, before the World Cup was on and the squad had their base down at Largs and when they beat Wales 2-0, Willie Ormond allowed the players a night out. When he meant a night out, he didn't mean out in the fifth of Clyde, though that's the way it turned <laughs> up, of course. <laughs> and of course, uh, that's what happened once a few beers had been taken and the players decided to have a wander along the beach. Jimmy Johnson found an empty boat, an empty rowing boat, and being jinky, he climbed in. Sandy Jardin, the Rangers go-back, shoved it out into the water. Jinky realised there were no oars in the boat. He was drifting out to sea, singing Michael Row the Boat Ashore, which was a hit <laughs> at the time. David Hay and Eric Shadler, the Hibs player, grabbed another rowboat, which did have oars, but then it turned out when they got out into the water that their boat had a leak, so they made it back to dry land. But it was decided the Coast Guard had to be called out to rescue, rescue Jinky. By the way, this was at six in the morning. And of course, the whole issue became a new sensation uh, with the SFA being mad at the media contingent as though they were the ones to blame. The players too were um, pretty aggrieved at the media. But the episode didn't stop Scotland beating England 2-0 with Jinky in a star roll. Star roll. And if you get the chance you, and you can look it up on social media, there is footage of the end of that game in Scotland taking a bow before their fans. And Willie Ormond has a little word with Jimmy Johnson, who's celebrating. And Jimmy turns around and, as we say, flicks the vicky towards the press box at full time. So the manager tells one of his star players to make an obscene gesture to the press. This is how different a time that was. And it's crazy. It's it's a, a crazy story and probably one of the most famous in Scottish football history. But as you mentioned there, Jimmy Johnson, obviously, he was, he was capable of producing stories like that in the front page. But, I mean, talk about his star performance that day against England because... That was an England team coming to to show Scotland that they were still the top dogs in Britain and Scotland just and Johnson in particular was just immense that day. Jimmy was tremendous and of course he was doing what he liked to do. He had the shirt outside the mm. shorts. He was taking the ball for walks up to the corner flag. He was beating players and beating the same player again just for fun. The Tartan Army was bellowing. He took he, he took a couple of bows for them at one point. Um, this was showmanship. You might call it showboating, but it was showmanship at its best. 
And again, it reinforced the belief amongst the Tartan army that uh, Wee Jinky was going to be one of the stars of 74. And the, the draw, obviously, you spoke a few minutes ago about the draw. Scotland are drawing with the, the world champions, Brazil, European powerhouses, Yugoslavia, and the African champion, Zaire. It's very different now to 74. I mean, to, and if Scotland were in the World Cup, we would we would know basically the three teams they were up against in a few minutes. But, I mean, famously, Wally Ormond goes to Zaire to watch them play in the African Championship final and leaves at half time to go for what he called a wet, which was his his euphemism for a drink. And it showed the kind of, I don't think that obviously Brazil, we know, we know about Brazil and how, I mean, this is four years after the superb team of the 1970 World Cup. Yugoslavia were making their name. There wasn't much known about Zaire, was there? Well, it was interesting to look back from the perspective that we have today and how we regard world football, because in those days, there wasn't a football, a FIFA ranking table. Yeah. So tournament, you know, there wasn't in those days. So tournament draws were a bit of an ad hoc affair. Brazil could claim to be the number one side by virtue of being the reigning world champions, of course. But Yugoslavia had posted a warning because they beat Spain to reach the finals, although, although they weren't considered, at least in Britain, as particularly hazardous opponents for Scotland, which when you consider that Yugoslavia at that time consisted of Croatia, Serbia, Slovenia, Macedonia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. It now seems incredible to regard them as that. And then there was Zaire, first-time qualifiers and from Africa, which was the back of the uh, beyond from world football as far as mm-hmm. British fans and the media were concerned. Willie Ormond actually said of them, if we can't beat Zaire, we might as well go home. Yet, as you say, they were in the African Cup of Nations final. They were the holders of the trophy. And another warning sign was that they had a Yugoslavian backroom staff yeah. and their coach. Milian Miljanic was their coach, and he had a double motivation for frustrating Scotland. So really, if we were to go into these circumstances now, far more, as you say, would be known about the opponents. They'd be broken down, of course, by computer studies, so we would know everything about every single player. And when you look back, it's really a kind of homespun attitude that we had going into that World Cup. And obviously, Brazil, I mean, we'll touch on Brazil later on, but they're not... Was there, a, was there a thinking with Brazil? Like, 1970, they were the best team probably of all time in a lot of people's mind, but was there a was there a thinking that because it was going to be a European championship that they were going to be taking on a European style or were, were Scotland still expecting the Brazilian elegance of four years before? It was felt, and again, it's so hard to imagine this looking back from our perspective in 2022, but it was widely felt that Scotland would could or would win the World Cup and that uh, they'd be able to take on Brazil uh, on European soil to their advantage. And a lot of this belief came from the fact that Scotland had gone down to Wembley in 67 when England were world champions Mm -hmm. and put on a show. So there was a feeling that Scotland were, it wasn't exactly a home game or a home tournament to be playing in West Germany, but it was felt that it was as near as makes no difference. And yet another factor that was going on in the background was there were rows about the size of the player pool. Um, Scotland had arranged finals against Belgium and Norway. Yeah. But uh, warm-up games. But the run-up to those games was marred by disputes about the size of the player pool of money. The squad had a business manager called Bob Bain. And as was said at the time, if all his promises had been banknotes, everybody would have been happy. <laughs> it was actually a showdown at the squad hotel at Largs after which Willie Ormond said of Bain that he was no further on than he had been the previous November. So the Scots left for Belgium in a sour mood about the commercial arrangements. 
And a lot of people wondered if it had an effect on their performance in the warm-up match because it ended in a 2-1 defeat. Willie Orman's reaction to the press immediately afterwards was to call the referee a homer. You wouldn't get away with that now, even in a friendly UFL level or FIFA level. And then Scotland flew on to Norway. And again, the signs of um, mishandling were very evident because their next source of unhappiness was the fact that the accommodation was not a hotel or based out in the country. It was a student's hostel, part yeah. of which was, open, which was open to tourists who were coming in and out while the Scotland squad was there. And then the next row was when newspapers refused to pay £5,000 for an official squad photo. And morale got even worse when Billy Brenner and Jimmy Johnson got drunk in the students' bar. The SFA were all for sending the pair home, but they apologised and they were allowed to stay. So the SFA took it out in the Scottish Daily Express, who'd broken the story and kicked them off the official flight. So you can imagine what this looked like to the support at home. Of course, in those days, it's way before social media. Um, so the, you can imagine what TikTok and Twitter and uh, all the other social media outlets would have been like uh, had they had that to feast on. But as it happened, uh, things became a little calmer. The game itself was contentious. Scotland had to come from behind for a 2-1 win. But I think we would all agree that none of that, knowing part of those ingredients would now be considered acceptable in the build-up for such a big tournament. No, and obviously the it's the infamous headline that Hugh Taylor wrote for the, the trip to Bel the the trip to Oslo was the Tour de Farce. And there's there's a lot of stuff to take from that kind of that trip to Norway was obviously Brenner and Johnson getting into a, a bit of a drunken stupor, I think the the word for it, but <laughs> Johnston certainly kind of suffers from that. And we'll touch on it maybe later on, but Johnston's kind of demeanors during that trip certainly play a part in the his lack of involvement in the World Cup but it was on to West Germany for the World Cup. Scotland obviously were in the group with Brazil and Yugoslavia but they would play Zaire first. Brazil would play Yugoslavia in the opening game and draw nothing each which meant if Scotland were to beat Zaire in the first game they would go top of the group but before we get into talking about the uh, games Roddy I want to touch on West Germany obviously hosting right in the this is right in the middle of a a very difficult time for the Germans, obviously. It's still half of the Berlin Wall. Two years after the Munich massacre in 72 at the Olympics, it was, you look back at videos and kind of people's stories about this time, it was an absolute security frenzy. It was, and as soon as Scotland touched down in Munich, the security kicked in. They noticed immediately, as did the media, that the plane was surrounded by armed police, something like 50 armed policemen around the plane on the tarmac. And that continued into the, um, the lounges in the airport and the surveillance went on right through to the team hotel and training ground. Now, it meant that everybody coming or going to the squad hotel had to pass through an armed police cordon and be identified and be searched. Some of the travelling party, some of the players and some of the media complained that it made the atmosphere feel quite oppressive. What you can take for uh, as gospel, and I know this to be true, there were people in the SFA who felt it would be a good thing to have that security because it might stop the players getting up to whatever would be the West German equivalent of heading out to see in a rowing boat or going down to student bars and getting puddles. So there was one half of the arrangement, the SFA officials who thought, this, who actually said at the time, off the record, if only Scotland could have this kind of security all the time, life would be a lot easier. <laughs> But obviously it meant that Scotland would go into the first game against Zaire. They take a wee while to get going in the first game. I watched this back mm -hmm. yesterday and looked at the looked at the game and Scotland Zaire have the better chance, but 
Scotland get a foothold in the game. A, a great goal from Peter Lorimer, then a really bizarre goal from Joe Jordan, where I don't know if Zaire trying to play the offside trap, but it certainly doesn't work. Joe Jordan gives Scotland a 2 0 lead at half time. And it was a fairly routine victory, but in hindsight, should Scotland have tried to score more goals? I mean, there's a famous video of the players kind of playing keepy up in the Zaire half and things like that. And you think just the way the group ended out, just if Scotland had went for the the jugular, they could have really, really put gave herself a great chance of going through. It's one of the great regrets when you look back at this tournament. As we've said already, it was their first appearance in the World Cup finals for 16 years. I mean, they took the field in Dortmund for the opener in Zaire. It was pretty universally expected that they would win, and they did. But usually, it was only after Zaire surprised them by keeping Scotland hemmed in through the opening stages of the game. They were much better on the ball and much faster, much um, more controlled than anybody had expected. Then Joe Jordan and Peter Lorimer get the first half goals. The Tartan Army in the stadium and the TV audience at home expects the same again or even better more after the interval. But although Zaire were considered the group mates, I think we can see from the perspective now that it was the Scots who were naive. It was actually a hot day, and Joe Jordan admitted that he and his teammates took their foot off the pedal because they wanted to conserve their energy for what they felt would be the more difficult uh, games to come. Another factor in that decision by the players was that they knew that Brazil and Yugoslavia had played out a goalless draw the previous yeah. evening, which meant that any kind of win over Zaire would put Scotland top of the section. So the second half was a disappointment for the fans who thought there should have been a few more Scottish goals. And as it happened, that would have been a good outcome for Scotland. But it was 2-0 at full time, and Scotland were top of the group. And Scotland were top of the group, and it meant that Scotland would play Brazil in the next game in Frankfurt, and Yugoslavia would play Zaire at the same time, and we'll certainly mention that in a couple of minutes. But, I mean, Scott, I mean, you look at this game and... I mean, it's unthinkable now for, for somebody like me and obviously a lot of people who listen to this and Scotland took the game to the World Champions and took the game to a Brazil team in the World Cup. But Brazil had taken on a a real European approach and it was a very, very it was a very unlike Brazil Brazil display. There was a lot of fouls, there was a lot of yellow cards. What did you think of Brazil's performance in that game? Well, as you say, Scotland versus Brazil and Frankfurt, there was a lot of excitement amongst the Tatan Army up against the world champions. It, it couldn't have presented a greater contrast to the game against Zaire. And one of the things that uh, also influenced Brazil's thinking about how they were going to play was they were without Pele. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were still considered to be the world's top team, so it was regarded as a sound performance by Scotland to get a goalless draw. Most observers felt Scotland should have won because they had the best chance of the game. Yeah. A, Joe, a Joe Jordan header that was saved by the goalkeeper Parried and the rebound came out to Billy Bremner, a yard out of goal, but squeezed it just past the post. Now, to be fair to Billy, the ball actually came off him at point blank range. It wasn't a shot, but it was the nearest Scotland would come to scoring. And it would have been valued for a goal in a place in in Scottish football history because they played Brazil on 10 occasions and never won. And 74 was the time when it could and should have happened. And a good few years later, when Scotland were playing the European Championship in Sweden, um, I was working with Billy Bremner and I, went, I had a bite to eat with him one evening and I asked him about that particular miss and he, he kind of avoided talking about it and the next day the Scottish media were playing the Dutch media in a friendly, in a ch- challenge game and we had a couple of ringers, Walter Smith and Bremner playing for us anyway I was up front and uh, I got the ball inside the box it was one of those cutbacks where you think well I take a touch or will I shoot, I took a touch and it was cleared immediately and from the back of the field all I could hear was Billy's voice going 
Herodo, don't ever mention Brazil again. <laughs> it mattered to him to think about that back in those days. But also, if it is important as that Brazil game was the game against Yugoslavia, between Yugoslavia and Zaire, mm-hmm. the Yugoslavs had learned from watching Scotland that Zaire were wide open in defence. But not only that, there was a crisis in the Zaire camp when the players found out that money that had been supposedly allocated to them for reaching the finals had actually been looted by their FA officials. There was nothing left in the kitty. And they were talking about going in strike, and they meant it. It was reported that FIFA stepped in with 3,000 Deutschmark per player to make sure that they would actually put out a team. But they did field a team. But to most observers, it looked as though they had gone in strike in any case, because Yugoslavia went three up within 15 minutes. At which point, at which point their coach, who, as we've mentioned, was a former Yugoslav international, mm-hmm. takes off the goalkeeper and replaces him with a substitute who's five foot four inches tall. It was 4-0 a minute after the substitution, and the wee keeper conceded another five before full-time. So 9-0 the final score, and Scotland then left to argue and wonder what might have happened if they hadn't eased up in their game against Zaire. But then, to be fair to Scotland, Zaire still believed they were going to be paid at that stage of the proceedings. And was there, talk, was there anything mentioned at the time about the that whole thing? Because, you, well, obviously Zaire was, it was run under a kind of dictatorship where uh, Joseph Mobutu. There was a lot of talk, kind of, in years since that that he had threatened the players that if they lost the next game against mm-hmm. Brazil by more than three goals, that they would never see their families and things like that. And but as you mentioned there, that their head coach is a Yugoslav international, and it's always fascinated me when you look back in this period that you've got all this dark arts going on, and basically, did Scotland have any chance of really going through with all that going on? Well, it was known that there were problems within the Zaire camp, as I say, and the fact that um, FIFA stepped in with the payment behind the scenes. President Mobutu sent um, a squad of his personal enforcer mm-hmm. to the team hotel. They banned all journalists and TV crews. Um, and it was also said, as you, you said, they wouldn't see their families again. They were told they would never be allowed back in Zaire if uh, they um, lost 4-0. To Brazil, and actually, when it was 3 0 down, they started booting the ball up the park in their game. Yeah. Some observers who weren't familiar with what was going on were wondering what was going, what was actually happening. But basically, Zaire just wanted to keep the ball as far as possible away from their goal uh, because they were afraid of Mobutu's henchmen who were in the hotel. But uh, as I say, the um, uh, their coach had in the um, Yugoslavia game had taken off the goalkeeper and replace him with a substitute and when it came down to the last match day Brazil needed to beat Zaire by three goals which they did and the understanding was that they would take their foot off the gas if they got to 3-0 which they did although it was partly also the case that the Lepers were defending frantically at that point as I Mm -hmm. said just rooting the ball anywhere as long as it was as far away from their goal as possible and Scotland and Yugoslavia finished one each the, Yugoslavia, the Yugoslavs went ahead with 10 minutes to play. Joe Jordan got a very late equaliser. And all of which meant that Brazil, Yugoslavia and Scotland all finished level on four points each. Each of them had drawn with the other two teams. And so it came down to which country had scored fewest against Zaire. And that was Scotland, <laughs> who were eliminated from the World Cup finals without losing a game. What a typically Scottish way to go. And it's that thing as well, when you, you kind of look at, we, we do this, we've done this last year with the, the Euros as well, you, the first thing you do is look at the post-mortem of what could, have, what could have been done to prevent that. And there's two things, obviously, I want to get your thoughts on, was just 
another another two goals would have done it against that year. But very interesting as well that Jimmy Johnson doesn't play a minute at this World Cup. And if you think about tough defences like Brazil and Yugoslavia, if there was one player in that Scotland bench who could unlock those defences, it was Jimmy Johnson. But do you kind of understand why Willie Ormond didn't play him? Well, Willie was never very open about this in years to come. He was asked, was it because of disciplinary reasons that um, Johnson wasn't played? He did once say if it was for disciplinary reasons, uh, he wouldn't even have been in the bench. But that said, he had taken him along in the squad. Um, there had been the incident, of course, uh, it was quite separate from the rowing boat incident. There had been the drinking episode with Billy Bremner, but Bremner had also been involved in that and he did play. So there's been debate about Jimmy Johnson's participation for many years. Jimmy Johnson himself felt that he had just soured Willie Ormond and finally Willie wasn't prepared to trust him. Um, it was speculated that Jock Steen might have made a call to Willie to, to see what the problem was. But I spoke about that job year, uh, to Jock years later and, and he, didn't, he said that there was no phone call. So we have to accept that. And it may just have come down to Willie's own particular idiosyncratic way of selecting the team. He may just have felt that, as people did sometimes feel that Jim, Jimmy Johnson was a luxury player, mm. that although you, you had him on the team to, to beat opposition players, and as you correctly said, to unlock defences, there were times that it was felt that Jimmy was a, a frill player, a player that was added on for ornamentation sometimes. You look back at his skill now and what he could do, and you find that almost an unbelievable um, attitude. Yet it was there, it was present in the media, it was present among some SFA officials, and it may have influenced Willie. And then, obviously, Scotland, had the, just the way the, the World Cup had worked out, West Germany obviously beat Holland in the final, but West Germany had lost to East Germany earlier on, so Scotland were the only unbeaten team in the finals, and I think there's only two teams that have went that have been unbeaten in the group stages without qualifying for the last 16. I think it was New Zealand was the other one in 2010, but it showed you just how how remarkable a feat that is and just how unlucky Scotland were. But you look at the the kind of the stories from the Tartan Army from guys obviously that, that went to Germany and other things and the the heroes welcomed the, the players got when they came back to Glasgow Airport. There was a lot of respect for the, the players for a valiant effort, wasn't there? There was and that carried on into the nineteen seventy eight World Cup, mm -hmm. rather unfortunately for Scotland because mm -hmm. it worked in reverse at that stage. But if you wanted to just sum it up, you would say from rowing boats and coastguards to an unbeaten departure. And to this day, 74 was Scotland's best performance in a World Cup final. It was, and it's been an absolute pleasure to go through it with you, Roddy. Thank you very much for joining me. I've really appreciated it. And I too. And it was fun to think back on those memories, even as, as improbable as some of them are. Brilliant. Thank you very much to everyone that's tuned in. Please, please follow us on social media and subscribe to our YouTube and podcast channels. And we will be back soon for another series of The Rewind. Thank you very much.